And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to, it's hard to believe it's the hump day, it's Monday, it's hump day, I don't know what day it is here, but we're halfway through the week and it is the official start of trading at least for the last half of the year. So very quickly now we're going to start second quarter millennial earnings season, of course, that's just right around, uh, so we'll actually start on Monday for the most part. We've got a few little earnings kind of dripping out before then, but primarily next week. It's going to where it's really going to kick off with all the major banks, et cetera, really reporting earnings. So, again, we're going to see a, uh, a kind of that first glimpse of just how good that second quarter was or wasn't. Um, inter- interestingly, analysts are rapidly ratcheting down estimates as usual, uh, so we can actually make sure that plenty of companies actually beat their estimates as we go into the second quarter earnings. So, again, just kind of keeping a watch on this. Um, but this will kind of be the driver for the markets here over the course of the next few weeks in particular. Uh, both that and, of course, as always, who announces the bigger stock buyback package. That's going to be, you know, kind of what pushes prices in one direction or the other. Uh, but good news, of course, is that on both really Friday and then uh, on Monday, which was half a trading day on Monday, Markets did come up and actually close at a new 52-week high. So again, uh, this brief correction back to the 20-day moving average held. Markets took off from there, <clears throat> broke out to a new all-time high, flipping back to a buy signal here. Here's the only problem with all of this is that this is all occurring at a fairly high level. Markets already backed overbought. You didn't really get a good enough correction there to give you a good entry point on a risk reward basis. Uh, You did get a little bit of a pullback, but again, not enough to make a whole lot of difference here. The trend's still very much intact. Uh, We've been really kind of running along this 20-day moving average, you know, ever since really uh, earlier this year. So again, as as, as far as the market goes in total, everything seems to be okay. Uh, of course, yesterday was a holiday, so everything was closed. Uh, big parties everywhere. Everybody had parties yesterday. Uh, you know, lots of fireworks, cocaine at the White House. You know, it was, it was a good. It was a good Fourth of July uh, across the board. Um, so every, you know, everybody <laughs> survived apparently. But but again, Fourth uh, of July now behind us. So now we're starting to look out uh, for the rest of the year. So all right, co- you know, as we kind of talk about things, uh, you know, kind of in general. Uh, the big question now is for this last half of the year, this kind of this divergence that's occurring between the economic data and more importantly, economic indicators and really kind of what the market's been doing, right? And that's, that's the real challenge here for investors. And it's a, it's a real challenge for markets. And, and of course, as we start talking about the rest of this year, m- the market is already 8% higher now than analysts had predicted at the beginning of the year. So where do markets go to from here? I mean, even on the most optimistic estimates that we had coming into this year, the market has already zoomed well above that. So the question really becomes where to now, right? And, and hopes are, of course, the markets are going to just keep kind of keep trending higher. And that's going to, that's always the, you know, the optimistic hope. But again, you've got to have earnings to keep up with that data. And again, we keep expecting these stronger bouts of earnings, but yet we keep getting weaker earnings. So 
you know, it, it's a real dichotomy here, uh, this kind of this divergence between what the economy's doing and, and what indicators are doing. Now, the one positive note to all of this, of course, is the wealth effect. And that wealth effect should start leading to better economic data as consumers feel more confident about their financial situation. The, the, but this is the challenge. The, these are the things that we're going to have to deal with over the course of the next you know, few months. Now, you know, as we take a look at all of this, very importantly, this is, this is going to have big impacts to how we invest. Okay, having said that, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, markets are, as I said, back to all-time highs, and uh, not all-time highs, sorry. <laughs> We're back to 52-week highs, but analysts are now expecting that we will rapidly reach all-time highs by the end of this year. So again, markets on a very bullish positive trend. Market moving averages are all now rising, so this actually adds to that bullish uptrend in the markets. Again, lots of level of support between the 20-day, the 50-day, the 100-day, the 200-day moving averages, a tremendous number of levels of support for this market to keep it within a bullish trend through the rest of this year. Now, importantly, though, none of this sets aside the simple fact that we can have a 3 to 5% correction anytime here this summer or early fall, uh, getting ready to go into the end of the year. In fact, a, a 3 to 5% correction should be expected because that's normal within any, any given year. And a retest of the 50 or the 100-day moving average, which is that 3 to 5% correction, should be expected. And that will be a much better opportunity on a risk-reward basis to put capital to work in the market. The issue now, of course, is the economic data. The economic data continues to read pretty weak. In fact, on Monday, we had both the ISM manufacturing and the S&P global manufacturing indexes both point to weaker economic activity. But yet, what we have now is a divergence between the market return for this year. So if you look at the annual rate of change on the S&P 500, that is rapidly increasing. And that has a very high correlation to the manufacturing indexes historically. So the year-over-year -year rate of change of the index has a high correlation to the annual change in the manufacturing. So what this is telling us is that if the S&P is correct, and as an example, we, always, we often look at the S&P index as a leading indicator of the economy because, well, if markets are rising, that means that earnings are improving and outlook is improving, and therefore, economic data should improve following that within six months or so. Well, the market is telling us that within the next three to six months, we will see an improvement in the economic data to support the improvement in the price of the market because that would suggest that then earnings are also improving for the market, the market being a leading indicator of all this. Now, the question is whether or not you believe that, but there's a very long set of historical data that suggests that is exactly the case, that this rising, this rising price in the market, which is the wealth effect that Ben Bernanke and, and Alan Greenspan and others have spoken about historically, that leads to a more confident consumer. They look at their 401k plan, they look at their investment accounts, they have more money, so they feel more, they feel more opportunistic and, and more optimistic about spending money in the economy, right? Because their wealth is rising. That's the, that's the belief that the Federal Reserve has about this creation of the wealth effect and its impact on economic data. Now, whether or not that's going to be the case this time because of the Federal Reserve hiking rates, because of them trying to slow the economic data, 
this is all up in the in the air for question right now. But uh, you know, historically, what the statistics say is that a rising market will lead to improving economic data, and the economic data has now been negative for over 15 months. We've been having a consistently negative economic data for 15 months. That's a very long stretch for an economic slowdown, recession or not. And so we should just start seeing some improvement, just historically speaking, from the cycle as companies have to start restocking inventory, people are coming back to work, et cetera. Again, looking at low jobless claims, low unemployment rates, everything the Fed has been trying to do in terms of slowing the economic environment really hasn't worked tremendously in terms of bringing inflation down. And so this is the big, this is the big battle, the battle between the Fed and their inflation boogeyman and the market's expectation of a return to economic prosperity. Who wins this fight is gonna be the, the, the victor here. And that'll mean whether investors are right or wrong is all gonna be dependent on how this turns out. So again, this is why we continue, we don't know the answer. And this is why we continue to navigate these markets cautiously, but optimistically as prices are rising. So we wanna use opportunities to increase equity exposure for now, until the markets begin to tell us something different. But this is what you need to know before the bell this morning. And when we come back, we'll get into some of the other economic data and things that are going on in the market. So stick around as we get ready to kick off the second half of the year right here on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence and prepare for the second half of 2023 with the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review. Saturday, July 22nd. With Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Chief Investment Strategist Lance Roberts. Get our report card for the market so far and what you need to know to invest profitably for the rest of the year. Register now for the RIA Mid-Year Economic Review, Saturday, July 22nd, with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Hey, welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, Wednesday already as we kind of already get through this week July the 5th and we're now talking about the second half of the year and and very rapidly we're now going to start talking about corporate earnings again and it seems like we just kind of got through earnings season and here we are going to kick it off again yeah it happens every quarter um, and of course this is where we start talking about millennial earnings season as well where analysts continue to cut earnings estimates to a level where all the companies can get over them. And in fact, just in the last month, there's been about a $3 cut to the end of the year estimates for 2024 and coming forward, right? So earnings estimates are coming down all across the board, but all the way out into 2024, they're already starting to cut those estimates as well on expectations of, of well, not as robust earnings growth as what was previously expected. Um, but if we take a look at the second quarter earnings, where we're now talking about here, there's been a massive cut between last year and this past week of those expectations. Earnings have fallen, estimates have fallen sharply. So again, that bar is now set very low 
for companies to come in and beat it. So again, we'll have a very high beat rate once again. You know, we'll have 70, 80% of companies beat estimates. We're all going to be happy. It'd be like, woo, everybody beat estimates. It's awesome, right? So prices will go up and this will be a good positive earnings season. The question is going to become, as is always the case, and again, we don't spend enough time talking about the quality of earnings. We talk a lot about the quantity, right? This is what they earned, but we don't talk about the quality of it. It, more importantly, we don't talk about the revenue. And see, we get all tied up in the, the, the actual bottom line earnings. We're like, oh, this is great, man. This company earned a dollar a share, whatever it is. So excited. We need to run the company up another 20% or so. But we don't talk about the revenue. And the reason that we should talk more about the revenue is because that's what happens at the top line of the statement. Are we growing revenue? Because if we're not really growing revenue and we're growing earnings by, you know, accounting manipulations, cookie jarring, you know, things like cookie jarring reserves or, you know, postponing expenses, et cetera, we're not really creating revenue. And just a good example, reported, reported earnings, as an example, are up over 550% from the financial crisis. Revenue is only up 104% since the financial crisis. So how do you manufacture an extra 400% or so of earnings against revenue? And you do that through things like reducing your share count, through stock buybacks. We do that through how we report certain expenses, how we deduct things. We do that through a lot of things. You know, banks are notorious about this, right? So when banks are concerned about credit risk, they have these they move money off their balance sheet onto a loan loss reserve. Well, when they get less worried about that, they move that loan loss reserve back onto their income statement. That counts as that counts as revenue. It's the same dollar, right? They just converted an expense back into income. So you've got to be careful when we look at these things and say, okay, this is great. This company just beat earnings. But are they really growing earnings? Are they really creating this value that I'm paying for? You know, and of course, just recently, the kind of the hot topic has all been AI. And of course, NVIDIA has been the, the star of that whole AI chase right now. It's up, uh, you know, it's up 170% this year, whatever. You know, but if you take a look at their earnings certainly doesn't really support that. The reason the stock is up so much this year is because they promised that in the second quarter, which we're now about to see, is that they were going to increase sales by 50% in a quarter. That's a big jump in sales. And if they do that, that's going to be awesome. And they probably will. I, I, you know, I'm sure that in the first quarter when they were announcing, you know, their earnings, and they made this statement that we're going to have a 50% increase in sales, they probably already had orders in hand. 
right? And unless something dramatically changed and all these people canceled orders, they probably have a good estimate that they'll be able to increase sales by 50% this quarter. The question will be whether they can maintain that going forward because right now at 40 times price to sales, which is where it's currently trading, that is a yeoman's piece of work to maintain a 40 times price to sales. The sales growth you're going to have to have is going to be enormous to make that valuation work. But when you take a look at a more normalized growth for NVIDIA, and so, so again, you know, it's not surprising. Everybody's going to jump on this AI train very quickly, right? Because everybody wants to be there. Everybody's doing it. So not surprising that all of a sudden there's this surge in orders, right? Oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to be first into this game, right? So I've got to, I've got to be the first guy to, to build this AI. So I need these GPUs and these chips. So big surge of orders. So yeah, probably NVIDIA is going to see a 50% increase in sales. Not going to be surprised at all. The question you should be asking, though, is then what happens next? Because if we look at the normalized growth trend over the last five years for NVIDIA, and that kind of gives us a good estimate for the world. I mean, because AI has been around for a while. These, these aren't brand new. We didn't just all wake up last week and go, hey, let's go, let's go buy these chips. AI has been around for a while. So if we go back five years and say, okay, well, what have they been growing their sales at for the last five years? Their sales over the past five years have grown at about 22% a year. Now, that's good, right? But that doesn't support a 40 times price to sales. If we take a look at their EPS growth over the last five years, it's 8% on earnings growth. Doesn't support 40 times price to sales. The EPS growth for the next five years is estimated to be 20%. Still doesn't support 40 times price to sales. It's good. It's good, strong growth. And that's probably high. Reality will probably be a number far less than that, as is usually the case. But see, these are the challenges that we're going to face going forward. And at some point, you know, we kind of we do come have to come back and talk. I, you know, and I know right now, like none of this matters because it's just all about the chase, right? We got FOMO going on. But at some point, fundamentals and valuations are going to matter because simply the company, in reality, can't grow to meet the valuations being placed on these companies. And it's not just Nvidia; it's others as well. But the valuations simply don't support the growth that these companies can actually generate. There was a funny, just a good example of this. There was a very funny um, video over the weekend. And shows two guys in a car. And, and the one guy says, you have a charger. He says, yeah, there's one in the glove compartment. The guy pulls it out. It's a, it's a uh, charger for an Android phone. He says, no, do you have a charger? He says, that is a charger. He says, no, no. Do you have a, a charger, like a real charger? And he goes, what do you mean a real charger? He says, you know, an Apple charger. He says, oh, you want an Apple charger? And then he says, no, I need a phone charger. He's like, yeah, you want one to charge an Apple phone. And he's like, yeah, everybody, why don't you have one? Everybody has one. It's like, no, 75% of the world has Android. 25% of the world has Apple. So... No, most people's phone charger is not an Apple charger. You may think it is because you're in the minority, but 
it is not the case. And because you think Apple is everywhere, it's not the case. It's just like everybody believes certain political things or certain social things that belong to a very small minority group, but because that's all they hear about, they think that that's the majority of things that are out there, right? It's all about perception. And the reason I bring this up is because Apple's a good case of this. Apple trades at a price to sales of eight times, but they own 25% of the market. It's a fully mature company. They're a $3 trillion company that owns 25% of the market. It's unlikely that they're going to build... 50% of the market, 75% of the market. It's unlikely they will own 100% of the market. And so when you start talking about a company that over the last five years have grown sales at 21%, they're not going to be able to sustain that growth rate in the future. Just because they won't own the entire market. See, the same problem for NVIDIA. NVIDIA, in order to justify its current valuation, they will have to own 100% of the GPU market, but AMD is a direct competitor. So they will never own 100% of the market because AMD competes in the same space. And competition will breed other competitors as well, you know, an opportunity. So this is why valuations ultimately matter. And again, it doesn't matter in the middle of the FOMO, right? Valuations do not matter right now. But when you're thinking out into the future and, and looking at your investments going, what am I paying for? This is why when we take a look at these earnings in this next quarter, it's not just the quantity of the earnings that's important. It's also going to be the quality of those earnings. All right, quick break. We'll come back. We'll go away. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, uh, Last year, you know, I told you here on the show that, oh, by the way, so yes, I'm wearing a different shirt this morning. This is an old shirt. This is not a new shirt. This is an old shirt. I loaned my other shirt. I have two shirts for the show in the morning, so we keep uniformity. Um, but I loaned the other shirt to my marketing guy because we're all getting, we are getting new shirts made and he needed to see how the, the thread count was done in the logo so that could be done. Well, he forgot to return it. So... My other shirt was dirty. It's at the dry cleaners. So I'm wearing a very old shirt. And you'll notice by the old logo of, the, of not the eagle that this is an old shirt. So I will solve your debate on YouTube this morning. So there you go. And no, it's not AI. I'm just tired. And I didn't feel like wearing a dirty shirt this morning. So there you go. Uh, so I told you last year in July, I sold my home. And my wife and I sold our house. Uh, the prices where we lived were just getting astronomically stupid. And my, we, had, we had built this house out in, uh, out in Katy. And we were planning to live in it for 
quite some time. And my wife loved this house. This house, we, we built this house to her specifications. So it was exactly what she wanted. And it was, it was a lovely house. It was, it was very, very pretty. And, but the prices got so ridiculous that my wife said, this doesn't make sense for us to not sell it. It's just, this is, this is stupid. So we sold the house. And there's a point to why I'm telling you the story, so just bear with me. So we are now renting a house, and just a few months ago, we bought a, we bought a house that needs a good bit of work done to it. And so we're in the process of the you know, architect and engineering and waiting on bidding and all this. So it'll, it'll be probably another 10 to 12 months before we move into this house. But it's interesting because we haven't touched this house yet, right? We haven't done a thing to it. And the house has already increased in price. Um, if you have something like Mint as an example to kind of monitor your budget, you can put your home address into it, and it will monitor the value of your home relative to Zillow, right? And so it's just it's just kind of an interesting thing, right? It kind of tells you a little bit about the housing market. Well, since we bought the house, it's already increased in price by a fair amount. And so now I'm starting to talk to my wife's like, do we really need to spend the money on this? Do we just flip it and go do something else? And the reason I bring this up is there was an interesting article about this on uh, Market Watch this morning. Millions of people, particularly older workers, are quitting their jobs because their homes appreciated so much in value that they can afford to stay, take a step back from the labor force. This is a new study that was taken out. So this is a working paper from the researchers of the University of British Columbia. They first published this in February and circulated it in late June, and they found a relationship between the increase in home prices and the decline in labor force participation. It said the pandemic housing boom to help homeowners, particularly those in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, to take a step back from work. And I, I find this interesting. I'll just read you a little couple of quotes here, and I'll, I'll tell you why I find it interesting. So high house prices allowed many older Americans to retire early. If not for the high house price, their labor force participation in 2021 would have been similar to 2019. This is according to the study. After the pandemic came to a halt, millions of Americans decided to switch jobs or give up their job altogether. This was a phenomenon called the Great Resignation. The rate of job quits in the U.S. hit a record high. And this is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The BLS attributes the sharp rise in quitting to labor market tightness or desire for workers to protect themselves and their family from the virus, etc., um, and pandemic-related closures of schools. The Pew Research Center uh, said the great resignation uh, felt like their pay was too low and a lack of opportunities for advancement. They felt disrespected at work, so they quit working. Here's the, here's the kicker here. The median price of a resale property in the U.S. was three hundred ninety-six thousand in May and twenty nineteen. Uh, in May of twenty twenty-three, in twenty nineteen, it was two seventy-seven. So here's the interesting thing about the study. Now, I, I get the correlation, right? But correlation is not always causation. If the median home price was two seventy-seven and it goes to three ninety-six and I sell the house and let's assume I'm debt free for the moment, which I'm probably not. I you know, I, I pick up maybe, you know, 150 grand. I'm not retiring on 150 grand. 
I mean, maybe you can if you had, you know, you know, a couple hundred grand in the in the four hundred one k, and you live fairly modestly. But then the question is, you still got to go somewhere, right? You still got to rent something if you're not going to buy another house. And and housing prices have not really declined that much. And with mortgage rates at seven percent, six to seven percent, your mortgage payment went up, not down. So, you know, you know, I, I get and I appreciate the study, but it is unlikely that people were in mass, right? quitting their jobs to retire because of the equity in their home. I'm not saying that they didn't. I'm not saying that the research is entirely wrong. I am sure that there were some individuals that were in their 60s, you know, late 50s, early 60s, late 60s, that had significant assets in the bank. And by means significant, I'm not talking about millions of dollars, right? I'm just talking about enough assets in the bank that when combined with Social Security and other you know, retirement benefits, whether it's a pension, whatever it is, they probably had enough money to retire and sure they retired. Part of that re great resignation was also voluntary because companies said, hey, if you'll retire early, we will pay you handsomely to do so because we need to reduce our headcount for the pandemic. And that's something that this article doesn't really touch on. There were a lot of people that were asked to retire during the pandemic shutdown. Now, a lot of those people are now going back to work, right? They they did retire. They did resign. Absolutely, they did. Some of it was forced. Some of it was coerced. Some of it was offered. But they absolutely did resign. They're now going back to work. And we're starting to see the number of older Americans back in the labor force because, A, retirement sucks after a while because there's only so many times you go play golf. But, you know, after a while, you just figure out you got something, got to have something to do, so you go back to work. And so we're seeing that. But it's always interesting when you see these studies because it's always about correlation and causation. Sometimes correlation and causation are the same, right? There's a very clear correlation of debt to economic growth. And there is a causation there as well. Sometimes there's not. The number of people that die from being tangled up in bed sheets and eating chicken have a high correlation. But, you know, I'm making that up, but, you know, there's a lot of correlations that have very strange relationships but have no causation to one another. But it's interesting, right? It's just we're always trying to find a reason. Like, here, here's why this is occurring, and it's occurring because of this. No, that's not really the case because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I sold my house. I may have, look, I can tell you, I sold my house. I made money on my house. I still had to go rent something. I couldn't, you know, unless I was going to go retire and live on the street under a bridge. I had to go rent something, and my rent payment, while cheaper than my previous mortgage payment, is still expensive. It's still going out the door every month. And if I wanted to buy a new house, I'm going to have to have a new mortgage. That mortgage payment is going to be higher than what my previous mortgage payment was. So... Yeah, I may have I may have an extra hundred thousand or so in the bank from the sale of my house, according to the the national medians. Now, some people got more, some people got less. 
but it, it probably doesn't afford me the ability to retire. But, you know, hey, we'll see. Matching labor force participation rates between those in their 20s and those in their upper 60s and 70s and home prices, the researchers found that when home prices rose, homeowners participated in the market less. But again, when we come we, when we come back and we look at the national statistics for savings, how many individuals have money in the bank, right? 80% of Americans have less than $500 in the bank. What's the national median for 401k plans, which is about 25% of the working population? It's less than a year's salary, right around $60,000 to $70,000. Not likely going to retire on that. And this is why we come back to talking about the problem with Social Security and nobody wants to touch the Social Security problem. Yes, Social Security is, is virtually bankrupt and they're going to have to cut payments at some point in the future. No way around it. But nobody wants to touch it because there are so many Americans that are dependent on Social Security for almost 100% of their income, right? That's the problem. You want a civil war on your hands? Go cut Social Security. <laughs> you think you got other problems in this country? Go cut Social Security and see what kind of problems you get. And this is why nobody wants to touch it. It's politically unelectable. Everybody wants to complain about it, but nobody actually wants to do anything about it. And the only way to do something about it is to let it implode on itself, and then we have to go fix it. And that's something that everybody will get behind. So, all right, quick break. We'll be back. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com i was actually uh talking about spurious correlations the last segment there's actually a website uh called spuriouscorrelations.com and it has things like U.S. spending on science, space, and technology versus suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation, a very high correlation. The more we spend on science, the more people hang themselves. Um, the number, this is one of my favorites. The number of people who drowned by falling into a pool versus films that Nicolas Cage appeared in has a very high correlation. Unfortunately, both of those are rising as of 2008, 2009. So I'm not sure how that how that was going. These these are a little bit outdated. Uh, they haven't updated this website in a while, but they were pretty funny. Uh, divorce rate in Maine and the per capita consumption of margarine. Both of those are declining, as well as the marriage rate in Kentucky, which is declining rapidly, and the number of people who drown by falling out of a fishing boat. <laughs> so again, unless a lot of unless most of those deaths were, you know, married couples in Kentucky and the wife was pushing the husband out of the fishing boat and drowning him. Maybe that's why they're both declining. I'm not sure. 
Anyway, but this is the point about correlations. Just because something has a correlation does not necessarily mean they're related. You always have to look kind of beyond just a comparative measure and say, okay, this is happening and this is happening. And yes, those are both happening at the same rate, but what do they have to do with each other? We know that increases in debt, as an example, if I have to sp spend more of my income paying for debt service, that means I have less money to spend in the economy. So there's a correlation between debt levels and weaker economic growth. The more the debt levels rise, the weaker economic growth, growth gets, and that makes complete sense because of the debt service. And so we know there's a correlation and causation there. So that's C. So it's always important to look beyond, yeah, it's great. You know, people are selling their houses to retire. Not really the case because the financial data doesn't suggest that is the case. We have a lot of people that are literally missing out of the workforce. There's 190 million people in America that are available to work. We have 160 million-ish employed. Where are 30 million people, right? We don't count them, right, because they've been out of the workforce, so we just assume they've chosen not to work at all. So we just don't count them anymore, right? They're just they're not part of the labor force count. So when we look at these employment statistics, yes, we have full employment, but if we have full employment, as an example, we have 3.5% unemployment. What does that say? If we had truly 3.5% unemployment, what that would suggest is, is that out of the entire working population, everyone, not just those choosing to work, that 96.5% of the population have a job. That's full employment, right? That means everybody's working in the economy. But we don't have 96.5% of the population working. We know for a fact there are 30 to 40 million people sitting out there that could work that aren't working for one reason or the other. So we don't really have 96.5% of the population, but it's just the way we count things, right? It's just the economic. And look, I, you know, I'm not de debating the economic issues or anything else in terms of how we measure things. I'm just saying is that just because the economic data says one thing, right? If, if here's a good example, we talk about this kind of wealth gap in the economy. We talk about this big gap in wealth. Well, if 96.5% of the population was working, that's going to drive wages higher because you truly have full employment. And at full employment, if you truly have full employment, then wages have to go up because the next person I got to hire to work for me, and again, if I have 96.5% of the population is actually working, they're all spending money in the economy. They're producing, so they're earning, so they're spending, and that creates economic growth. So we'd have growth rates of 6, 7, 8% like we had back in the 70s. We would have growth rates of 6, 7, 8% economically. We would have rising economic participation. We would have rising wealth standards across the country. You would have true economic prosperity at 96.5% employment. We don't have that because we don't actually have 96.5% uh, employment. It's just the way we measure it. And because of the way we measure it, that's that's creates these statistics that we read, and then we sit there and we scratch our head and go, this doesn't make any sense. Why do we have this set of economic data that says the economy's on the verge of a recession, but we have record low unemployment? Those two don't suggest that both are correct. Something is wrong there. 
And that's why we have this dichotomy in the economy right now. Again, it's all the mathematical adjustments that we make to employment data, right? Birth, death adjustment, which is totally just made up and fictional. We add jobs just because we think they're there. We have adjustments for seasonality that, in a lot of cases, don't make a lot of sense. I mean, we have a household survey that we have the data on. We don't really use it. We take that household survey, and then we manipulate that to come up with the official employment report. But all you do is do a 12-month average of your non-seasonally adjusted data, and you get roughly what is going on within the economy over time to adjust for. And using a 12-month moving average, you adjust for the variations in monthly employment due to seasonality. That's what a moving average does. We don't need all these mathematical fancy adjustments that are pure guesswork where we're adding a million and a half jobs in January to adjust for the seasonality of December. You just use a 12-month average. It smooths all this out. You get the real kind of underlying trend of employment in the economy. It's a much better indicator. We don't use it because it's too simple, and we wouldn't need to employ hundreds of PhDs in the, in, in the government to calculate this stuff. You need one guy with a 1970s TRS you know, Radio Shack <laughs> computer to do it. It's just not that complicated. But we try to make these things more complicated so nobody can understand it. And that way, when you produce it, everybody says, well, look, I don't really understand it. But OK, if, you, if the government says it, it must be true, right? It's on the Internet. If there's some Yahoo on the Internet saying it, streaming on YouTube at 6.54 in the morning must be true, right? But this is the point about correlations, causations, all these things. You know, you have to do a little bit of your own work in all this. So, so again, you know, when you take a look at headlines, when these headlines come out as an example, and it's not just this story. I just picked this story because it was interesting. But this goes for everything. When you read these headlines and see what's, you know, who you listen to, me, anybody, right, you have to look beyond that headline and say, okay, this guy says the world's going to end. This guy says, you know, the, you know, we're all going off to the moon, whatever it is. And try to build some type of reasonable structure around the facts behind those headlines. You know, we keep getting all these stories about, you know, the collapse of the dollar, the end of the economy, those type of things. But there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of meat to that story. It's a great headline. Right? Gets a lot of clicks, gets a lot of views, gets everybody all spun up, but there's not a lot of meat behind it. And there's not a lot of historical data that really supports that. And then there's just also the simple fact that in most cases, well, pretty much in all cases, the worst outcomes never happen. And, and because of human nature, and in the face of adversity, people tend to do something to improve the situation. That's just human nature. When things get bad enough, people tend to act in a way to improve those things. Because you don't have a choice. My choice is either I'll, I can lay here and, and just perish, or I can dig myself out of the hole. And as humans, we tend to dig ourselves out more often than not. So because of that, the, these worst outcomes that people predict typically never happen. So you're almost always better off in the face of a very dire prediction taking the opposite side of the bet. 
If somebody says, you know, the dollar's going to end, go long the dollar. You're probably going to win more often than not, right? If somebody says that, you know, bonds are going to crash into, you know, absolute catastrophe, I'd buy bonds. If somebody says the stock market's going to end, I would buy stocks. The reason is simply because that's how the economies work. In the face of the most dire economic, political, whatever it is, outcomes, people tend to make choices to make things better. It may take a while to get there. But eventually, people, human nature, and it doesn't matter whether it's the markets, whether it's the economy, whether it's politics, whether it's society, no matter what it is, when things get bad enough, People tend to choose to make things better. That's just the part of human nature. So it always tends to be better to invest with a bit of optimism versus pessimism. It's okay to be pessimistic, right? It's okay to be concerned. It's okay to be aware of the risk, but just don't make an entire bet on that premise. Always choose to be a bit more optimistic. It may not always work out immediately, but over the long run, optimism tends to prevail more than pessimism. Pessimism also seems logical at the time. But again, people, human nature, tend to fight that. That's just our human nature to do that. So just things to think about. Okay, so as we ready to wrap up the show for the day, of course, it's already Wednesday. So we'll be back here tomorrow um, on Thursday. Uh, to kind of talk about what comes next uh, as we get ready to kick off earnings season, of course, and the second half of the year. Talk about the markets. Michael Leibowitz will be here in the morning. So we'll get into all of that. Of course, get by the website. Michael Leibowitz's latest article is out on the website is now as well at realinvestmentadvice.com. As always, if you have questions, comments, whatever, simply click the Ask a Question button, send me your emails, answer those every day. Happy to do it. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.